Ezekiel's temple, prophecy, eschatology, and how all of that ties into emotional Christianity that twists God's word. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the show. My name is Cody Lawrence, and this is Spare No Arrows. A friend of mine on Instagram reached out to me asking about a certain language that he was hearing a lot of people using, things like, uh, let's level up in the spirit, or let's get to a higher level in the spirit, or a deeper level in the spirit, um, or like a deeper level in our faith. And he specifically, when he was elaborating about this for me, he would he said that a lot of these teachers would specifically say things like, if you get to a deeper level, you will be able to do maybe miracles like Jesus did or um, have other kinds of sp- deeper spiritual abilities, let's say, uh, if you are closer to God in this way. And the verse that they are getting this um this deeper level language from whenever he maybe asked these people about this is Ezekiel 47 4, which this is exactly why this ties into eschatology and uh, end time stuff and, um, and that kind of thing, because Ezekiel's prophecy is about uh, a lot of people think about the end times. It says basically there's this water pouring out of this temple in Ezekiel's vision. And he wades into the water and at the beginning it covers his ankles and then he gets deeper and deeper into it until he's up to his waist and uh these these charismatic preachers they say well this is this represents our faith in jesus and so it's a good thing for us to be deeper into this water of the spirit and uh you know, it's like as we develop in our faith, we're going in, we're going like deeper and deeper into the water. And the deeper into the water we are, the more, you know, spiritual powers we're going to have. Now, uh, it is important to mention before getting too deep into this that I am a cessationist. I don't think my friend is a cessationist. And um, hopefully he listens to this and also takes seriously what I'm saying regardless of the fact that I'm a cessationist. Um, But also I think cessationism has a kind of a straw man definition in the the charismatic community. And so I want to define it properly before going on. Cessationism does not mean what you often hear it means in charismatic churches who preach against cessationists. It does not mean that I no longer believe miracles exist. You very often hear uh, charismatic preachers who are trying to, you know, straw man our side and make us look bad, say those people don't believe in miracles. Now, an interesting fact about that is that is a blatant, bold-faced lie. And so I wouldn't trust pastors who lie to you. So that's one fun fact. You can, if, if, the, if anybody dares to say who is a pastor that uh, cessationists believe that miracles don't exist, um, you, you know, you can leave immediately because they're lying to you, right? And and that's not acceptable for a pastor to lie to you. <laughs> what cessationism actually is, is that uh, I no longer, or I believe that the special spiritual gifts that were given to the apostles continues. Does that mean that people cannot be healed anymore? No, God can heal people. Uh, God, can, God can do anything he wants, except the difference is I can't go around with healing power and zap people 
you know, I, people can't touch my robes and, uh, and then be healed, right? People don't have special powers anymore. And which kind of contradicts this point about going deeper into the spirit and getting uh, special spirit powers. So I think biblically as a cessationist, um, that's just a ridiculous idea in the first place. And part of the reason is because, um, I, I mean, just, just on like a totally pragmatic level, so many of these quote unquote faith healers where people say, uh, actually perform legitimate miracles. A lot of the miracles they perform, you know, quote unquote miracles that they perform are verifiably false or faked. Now, some of them, let's just say like, well, you know, it could go either way. You know, maybe it's real, maybe it's fake, except if if so many miracles are verifiably faked by a certain people, let's just look at Bethel, for example, um, or, you know, we could look at any anything like you know, Benny Hinn or, you know, name a, a quote unquote faith healer. And th- there are verifiably fake miracles that, uh, you know, any guy that I can think of has done. And so why would a person need to fake miracles if they could do actual miracles? And so just that right there is like, you know, these people are out for money. They're all super rich. Uh, they, they're pastors of gigantic mega churches. You know, it's just a bad sign, but not only that, but in, uh, at least, or close to, if not 100% of these teachers that I'm thinking of who are quote unquote faith healers, like you, you share with me, uh, any faith healer. And I'm sure they are teaching some kind of outrageously bad theology. They seem to go hand in hand. Uh, and, and so uh, my friend, whenever he was asking me about this kind of language, he even mentioned the, the prosperity gospel teachers say this kind of thing. And it's like, yes, that that's one reason to not take this kind of thing seriously. Um, but getting into the actual topic at hand, what is the problem with this idea of going deeper in the spirit? Well, there's no problem uh, inherently with the idea of uh, going deeper in your faith. You know, obviously we can grow in our relationship with God and that's a very good thing. And we should. Uh, The result of that, however, is not, uh, you know, that we've leveled up our spiritual powers and, you know, now we can cast fireballs or now we can you know cast more powerful healing spells that's not the result of getting deeper (laughs) in uh in our spiritual understanding with god the result is i would say more fruits of the spirit the result is more peace and patience and kindness and so on the idea of deepness there's no problem with that at all but what i worry about is the emotional manipulation behind the scenes with this kind of language because it sounds good. It sounds attractive. A lot of the language that these um, that these charismatic or prosperity gospel or uh, quote unquote faith healing teachers say is very emotional, very attractive, um, and it draws a lot of people in. As Americans, as Westerners, uh, you know, who live in this very decadent society that we live in. We love more than almost anything else to feel good. We are, uh, if we're not driven by truth, we are driven by our own personal feelings 100% of the time. Either we are driven by our feelings or we are driven by 
objective truth, and that objective truth is found in the Word of God. And incidentally, the Word of God says that our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things, and that we can't trust our hearts. And so, people who want to trust their hearts are actually disobeying the Word of God. (laughs) People who let their hearts guide their interpretation of Scripture are not actually trusting Scripture. Uh, Kind of funny. And so, any kind of Christianity, any kind of anything that is driven by emotion, stay away. Emotions drive parents to allow their little boys to get mutilated and uh, pretend that they've changed their sex. Emotion drives parents to mutilate their little girls and pretend that they're boys. Uh, Emotion drives like our own personal feelings and putting our own personal feelings above truth drives 100% of all evil things that people do in this world. And that same exact kind of attitude can, if we allow it to, infiltrate our own faith and our churches. And I'm afraid, uh, and I wouldn't say this about all of them, but I would say uh, many, and, and this is especially severe in the the charismatic denominations, um, especially dangerous there because I think it's so easy. So like I said, I, I not all charismatic denominations are, uh, or not all charismatic churches are 100% emotional driven. But, um, you know, there are plenty of people who love the word of God and try to faithfully follow it. But um, it's, it's especially easy there because I think just for charismatics, it's especially easy to be driven by your emotions. And to that, I say, run away. Run away from any anything that smells like emotional driven Christianity instead of something that is uh, rooted in scripture. So let's take a look um, because my friend said, you know, they would point to this verse in Ezekiel as proof that, you know, we, we really can go deeper into the spirit and it gives us special spirit powers. I want to show that this is actually a, a massive enormous misunderstanding of this passage. And so let's look at what it scripturally is. So first, um, Ezekiel is a book in the Old Testament, and a big chunk of Ezekiel is this vision about this uh, this temple, this temple that's going to be built at some point in the future to when Ezekiel was writing this. And he describes this temple in really intricate detail and the things that goes on in the temple. And so let's let's think about those things. Um, we can either interpret the, the temple literally, or we can interpret the, uh, the, the vision of the temple metaphorically. And I think a lot of the way that these, um, like the, the charismatic and the faith healer type people are going to interpret this is very literally like, this is going to be a literal temple that's going to be built. It's going to be the third temple. This is when, you know, God is like, uh, finalizing his plan with with the Jewish people. And so that's something that we can look forward to one day. Um, you know, God, like saving the Jews, whatever. Um, now, I think, interestingly enough, the people who want to use this passage, uh, Ezekiel 47.4, about the, the water pouring out from the temple, I think the people who are interpreting it the way that my friend described 
are being kind of inconsistent if they take a literal view of the temple. Because if this is a vision of a literal temple that will literally pour forth literal water, then that's all there is to it. You know, that that's what's going to happen. It is a physical description of a physical event that will literally happen at some point in the future. We can't turn around and say, oh, well, this is actually a metaphor for us going deeper in the spirit uh, because it's a, you know, it's a physical description of something that happened. If we say Jesus, you know, walked up to a mountain to pray, we can't say like, oh, well, what this is actually telling me is that I need to go up on spiritual mountaintops. Like, no, 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 this, this is a description of a historical event. You know, this is not telling you to do something. This is a, a description of a historical event. And um, now I, I don't happen to think this is a description of a historical event. Um, and I'll describe that momentarily. But if you believe that this is a description of a real life historical event that's going to happen at some point in the future, you can't cherry pick verses to say, uh, to like turn into metaphors to apply to you. Uh, in in different ways that you pick. And so I think, first off, that's kind of a dishonest way of using this verse. Because what, what, what a lot of people, I mean, you know, what anybody can do is they can have any kind of idea about absolutely anything. And this happens all the time. You can have any kind of crazy idea. And you can randomly find a Bible verse, take it out of context, and it can support your idea even if that idea is the most unscriptural thing ever, right? Like you can cherry pick any Bible verse, take it out of context and justify any evil thing you want. And so that should uh, make you wary of when people do this (laughs) with Bible verses. We should be treating the word of God with a lot more respect than that. But if we recognize that this is some kind of um, metaphorical temple, one, that actually invalidates a lot of what the dispensational types often embrace um, or or who often embrace emotional Christianity, uh, believe about eschatology, hashtag abandon dispensationalism. And number two, um, we need to figure out what the temple actually represents and keep the metaphor consistent so that we're being respectful of God's word and so that we can actually know what this verse about going deeper into this water means. I think the biblical view is that this is not a literal temple. One reason why people think that this is a literal temple is because there are a lot of very specific details like about measurements and the location and so if if something is specific in a vision, does that make it not metaphorical or does that make it not representative of something else instead of a literal historical event? I don't think so. And so I don't like the argument that, well, because these measurements are here, that must mean it's real. No, or it could just mean that that the measurements themselves also symbolize something or, you know, if this stru- if this temple is really big, whatever the temple represents must be. Um, important in some way, which it absolutely is. And I will talk about that in a moment. One of the things that happens in this temple in Ezekiel's visions uh, vision is that sacrifices happen. Now, theologically, we know that Jesus died to save us from our sins. And uh, Jesus died not just for Gentiles, but for Jews. Uh, we, we have to recognize that there's one people of God. There's the Jews and the Gentiles uh, combined who have faith. We are children of God by faith. We are sons of Abraham by faith, even Christians. We are not um, 
we are not children of God by blood. And so it, it does not matter whatsoever what kind of nationality we are or where we live or anything else. It matters if we have faith in God or if we don't. Uh, the true people of God are those who have faith. And if you are you know, a baptized believer and you're in the church and you go to church every Sunday and you don't have faith, you are a, you're not really in, in a child of God. You know, you might appear in all aspects as a child of God, but you're not if you don't have faith. Therefore, it's kind of weird if this new temple is built and then sacrifices are reinstituted because we know that sacrifices were made for atonement of people's sins. And that that can't happen if Jesus's sacrifice actually covers all sins. And so some of the answers that you'll get from people about this is actually, uh, well, these sacrifices, they're, they're ceremonial. And I've actually heard people say this, which is funny, because if you read the verse, which is in uh, chapter 43, verse 19, uh, about sacrifices, it says, You shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a, guess what? sin offering. And so one, to say that this is just ceremonial um, is, is just false because the, the Bible itself says it's not ceremonial, it's for a sin offering, which is why I think this and the other, you know, everything else about this temple is um, representative of something else. Because we can't reinstitute sacrifices after Jesus. You know, God institutes the millennial kingdom and Jesus died to save everybody from their sins. And then God's like, all right, hold up. I'm going to make all that stop working. Let's start sacrificing animals again. That's ridiculous. And so finally, so so this is a, a metaphorical temple. Um, I'll explain what the temple is because actually this verse, Ezekiel 47, 4, illuminates what the temple is. Um, and, and, you know, the, the rest of the description of the temple, I'm, I'm just taking kind of verses here or there that's relevant to our discussion about this uh, emotional language. So this temple is built on this mountain and there's water pouring out from under the, the threshold of this temple. And so like, is the temple built on a spring? Here's more evidence that the temple is, or that this is uh, metaphorical because, you know, what, what do we like have pumps under the temple that's pouring forth water? So anyway, <laughs> I don't want to belabor the point. There's water that is pouring forth from the threshold of every entrance to this temple in the north, south, east, and west. And this water, the farther it goes out, the deeper it gets. And so Ezekiel is guided by God to go through this water, and he's wading deeper into the water. And and God's like, you see how much deeper this is? And then something really interesting happens. The water from the temple then flows into the ocean, and or the sea. And the sea would be salty, right? The ocean would be salt water. Except Ezekiel chapter 47 says that when the the water from the temple touches the salt water, the sea, it makes the water fresh. And so all of the river fish can live in the fresh water. And uh, eventually like all of the water is made fresh. And that's another kind of weird fantastical element to this story that makes it seem metaphorical because normally when salt water touches fresh water the salt doesn't vanish it actually makes the fresh water salty <laughs> you know um, it, the opposite happens kind of like uh, typically whenever an unclean thing touches a clean thing it makes the clean thing unclean 
except when Jesus is involved. And so in the Old Testament, in the Levitical laws, I'm kind of jumping around here, but this is all going to make sense, I promise. In the Levitical laws, unclean made the clean things unclean. However, in the New Covenant, in uh, when, when Jesus came, that flipped. No longer did the uncleanness conquer. Instead, the cleanness conquered. Jesus touched sick people, and instead of becoming unclean himself, he made them clean. Jesus touched dead people and brought them to life. He wasn't made unclean when instead under um, Levitical laws, he should have, you know, like not, he should have been cast out of the town and, you know, forced to be outside for a week or whatever it is. Um, And so there's this interesting parallel with this water in the temple and this imagery of Jesus and what the gospel actually does. And so I think the temple is something like the church or it's this uh, or it's like you know the body of Christ essentially it's the it's the church it's Jesus Jesus came and instituted this this structure which is the body of Christ and from the body of Christ this water flows and it gets deeper and deeper the farther it goes until it covers the whole earth and makes all of the un or makes all of the 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 salty things, the unusable water, it makes it usable. It makes all the bad water good instead of being corrupted itself. And so I think this is actually a beautiful representation of the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and uh, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you to do. This, What this temple is doing is going forth and baptizing the nations with this water. And that is what the metaphor means. And so the water has nothing to do with our, like, we are not immersed in the water. You know, we do not go deeper and deeper into the water of the spirit. The water is the gospel. The water is the great commission. And the fact that it gets deeper and deeper shows that it spreads to more and more people. So it has nothing to do with individual faith. Although, like I said earlier, we can grow deeper in our relationship with God, I believe, of course. But, you know, even if you take this to be a metaphor, it's not even the right metaphor. What this is, is a wonderful, beautiful representation of the gospel spreading to the whole earth, which incidentally is very post-millennial. The the gospel actually covers the world. Jesus uh, is king now, and he doesn't lose. The church doesn't lose. The church wins, and the gospel covers the world. Uh, The, you know, a lot of people who are pre-millennials who say like, you know, Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be like great, horrible suffering. Um... Like, and and that's the moment where, you know, once, let's say that the gospel is preached to the nations, but nobody actually believes in it, the world is a horrible, awful place, then Jesus comes back, and at that point, there's no second opportunity for people to believe the gospel. This is not what's happening in Ezekiel's vision. The temple comes, then the gospel spreads. So, that's very post-millennial. Like, the gospel is spreading from the temple that, you know... uh, uh, dispensationalists and premillennials absolutely admit that this temple is describing the millennial kingdom, which, hey, I agree. <laughs> so right on. 
Um, So in conclusion, we really have to be careful to interpret the Bible properly. And this, uh, this vision in Ezekiel, I think, not only is not what the faith healer types and dispensationalists think it is, but it actually proves the opposite point. It proves that uh, it's a very beautiful verse that I think helps prove post-millennialism instead. And if you don't know what that is, you can look it up. And I have more podcast episodes on that. Uh, And it also is a, I think, a very grave warning to us for not, uh, for being very respectful of the word of God. We need to make sure that we're interpreting the word of God properly and not letting our emotions guide our interpretation of the word of God because that's bad. Because we can twist the word of God into saying absolutely anything that we want it to, that we want it to say. But instead, what we should be doing is letting the word of God speak for itself and then inform us on what we should believe, not the other way around. We should be doing exegesis where we pull the meaning out of the text and not eisegesis where we're putting our own thoughts and meaning into the text and twisting it up to say whatever we want it to say. That's no good. So hopefully that helped. Uh, Anybody can feel free to ask me questions over on Instagram anytime. And if you made it to the end of the episode and you enjoyed the content, feel free to subscribe to whatever platform you're on uh, and like it. That helps more people see the content. Uh, So thanks a lot. I'll catch you next time. God bless. God bless.